0: The Sound of the Amis Tribe on Radio Taiwan International.
1: Thanks for being with us here today on Radio Taiwan International for today's English language feature programs. Coming up ahead this hour, we will have Stroke of Light with Jake Chen, Eye on China. Natalie So will be bringing us her weekly take on current affairs on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. And we'll have our weekly Mandarin language lesson, Chinese to go. But we're going to kick off the day with Here in Taiwan. Welcome to here in Taiwan this Thursday, December the 13th, 2018. I'm Charlie Stora in the host's duties today. I'm joined in the studio by Shirley Lin. Hi Shirley. Hi Charlie. And we've got John Van Triest is here as well. Hi there Charlie. Hi there. We're uh, we're all wrapped up a little bit in the studio it's here. Chilly today. Yeah, the uh, the winter cold front does seem to be hitting us. And it hits us right here in the studio, not just outside, but you can feel it. As well, it's kind of cold in here at the best of times, isn't it? Uh, well, today we're going to be talking about uh, how a swine fever text, national text message alert has got uh, people talking uh, about this issue today. Um, yesterday, rather, we'll be hearing about a, the Junior Science Olympiad taking place in uh, southern Africa, in Botswana, I believe, where Taiwan's kids have been crushing it. And we'll be uh, on the trail of Taiwan's colonial past in the eastern city of Hualien. These stories coming right up. Okay, then, well, let's uh, start off uh, today with this story. Uh, John, yesterday, um, people across the country woke up to a very interesting. text message alert on their phones.
2: Well, it came in at, at noon, but uh, yes, I think everyone got it. Did everyone get uh, it? I, yeah, I, I did.
1: I woke up to it. <laughs> <laughs> you forced me to admit. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so uh, yes, it, it's a warning that you shouldn't bring meat into Taiwan. That's a very interesting thing to be warned about on your phone, especially with a national like alert system. This is a, the same emergency alert system that warns about uh, things like People having to clear off the roads because of an air raid drill, and usually earthquakes is the reasons we get it most often. Uh, I think there's been some flooding or typhoons and other... But anyway, it's mostly for emergency use. Mm. So African swine fever is serious, but I don't think it's... I'm not sure if humans can even get it. So it's. uh, I don't think... Qualifies as an alert emergency, you know, maybe if they need a friendly reminder service at level below that because it kind of freaked people out. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure what your guys reactions were, but I have an article here from the Taiwan News listing some reactions of Internet users here. Uh, I think the common theme here seems to be the bugs in our earthquake system. Now, sometimes some people will get them and others people won't. Mm. Uh, sometimes, which uh, earthquakes happen quickly and I guess it's hard to, you can't really predict them. Often so with the earthquake there's, alert, there's, you're, you're, it's in, over. You're, you're, you're like, thanks you're for feeling, letting me know. You're
1: feeling the earthquake or it's, it's, you've just had an earthquake and then you get a message to say right. there's an earthquake. Yes.
2: Well, I, I could have figured that out, but, uh, yeah. And I'm not sure if that depends on, you know, like your reception quality even or anything mm, like that. But mm. anyway, it, it points out a few holes in the system. Uh, one says, never received an earthquake text alert, uh, but this time I receive, I finally received an alert, and it's about swine fever. Mm. Another one said, I still didn't get it. So I guess not everyone in Taiwan who was supposed to did. Uh, earthquake notifications are more important to me. And other people were kind of alarmed. They said, I was scared. It scared me. I thought it was an earthquake. And that's, that was my reaction, too. I went, well, uh, I better find the nearest sheltered area. I was walking mm. on in the street. And then people I get more people complaining, I, when an, whenever there's an earthquake, I get nothing. Why send me a message about African swine fever? Hmm. So that's sort of a range of reactions here. Uh, I guess people will remember now, though, now that they've been scared, that uh, people bringing meat products into Taiwan, who, are, who violate rules about that can be fined up to 1 million NT dollars. I guess it was important enough to interrupt our day.
1: <laughs> well, this, uh, now this has sparked a debate on my, uh, uh, on Facebook. I've seen uh, taking part in threads on, on Facebook about this. And uh, yes, so people say, oh, well, this is a bit over the top about this African swine fever, isn't it? But this is a matter that we've been covering on the news and it is, it is serious. So, so the, the debate then goes into, so is this something, uh, is this, is this urgent and is it an emergency? Hmm. And I would say, in the case of of swine, if this uh, swine fever, yes, it is. It's it's very much a national security issue. Hmm. You're right in that that humans can't get it. It's not yeah. a direct threat to 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 people, but this is a very very severe danger for uh, the economy and and uh, and pig farming in Taiwan. Sure, because mm. if it gets here and the and. Uh, despite the, um, you know, they have stepped up fines on people trying to smuggle in meat, but they're Mm -hmm. still catching people all the time, Mm -hmm. people trying to bring meat in. And it would only take sort of one case of it getting through and then there being an infection. You'd probably pretty much have to slaughter all the pigs in Taiwan. And
2: Uh, this article does mention that there is a growing number of cases of interception of products that are tainted with this African swine fever Again, though, I think uh, if it incites panic, maybe that's not the best way to do it. More of a, they need a level below that. Mm. I'm not does, sure if that this was the appropriate panic, yeah. way to, uh, to to get that message across necessarily. Well,
3: I think maybe because um, they think that not most people are aware that there's going to be a fine. If you think you're trying to sneak in some meat product, a sausage or two or something like that. Right. But actually, you would be fine. And it's not a small amount, well, you know, and... That's they want to bring that to people's attention. So urgent, true. urgent,
2: yes, but an emergency. I think that's you know an imminent danger to your health and safety and life. Even it's an, I'm it's sure an imminent to, danger
1: to Taiwan's economy. To the, economy and the and the likelihood is it probably will get right. here arrive here at some point. But I think
2: uh, uh, overuse of this would make people sort of if every little thing we get an alert for, people are when a big earthquake strikes, people are going to be like, oh, it's just another swine flu alert.
1: So yeah. guess, that this needs is to is be
2: to done. That shouldn't yeah. be done too lightly. I don't think. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. and this one, this was. I mean, from what I could judge, this seemed to be like a a lot of people sort of just becoming aware of this issue for the first time. Yeah. Which was...
2: Maybe that's a a PR thing that maybe someone in the government needs to look at. But again, I'm not sure the medium was quite the right one for this for the situation. You
3: you wonder how how you can get the message across to the public, you know, and not everybody's watching TV these days or listening to radio (laughs) for the news. And again,
2: not everyone who was supposed to get it, because it says here all people got it. But uh, even in this article, there are people who didn't get it still. So I think that also exposes flaws in the system we have. Yeah, sure. (laughs)
1: It's an issue that certainly I'm I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, on the news, probably on the program here too uh, in the coming months. Let's talk now though about, uh, Shirley, over to you. Tell us about uh, how you can experience a
3: slice of Taiwan's colonial
1: past in
3: Hualien. Yeah, I mean, usually we don't relate or equate Hualien with colonial history, don't you think? I mean, you, you want to go to Huanian to, you know, uh, I don't know, to the scenery. see the scenery and that yeah. kind of stuff. But, you know, to my surprise, I mean, I was born in and I didn't know that there was a, a place where you can actually study about colonial history. You know, um, yeah, let alone staying, actually staying at, a, a ja- at an authentic Japanese ryokan. That's like a Japanese inn. Yeah. So anyway, apparently there is such a place in Hualien, and it's actually uh, the Taiwan Sugar Cup Corporation that has taken up the task of restoring and maintaining uh, these dormitories in Guangfu Township that were originally built to house Japanese laborers and officials throughout the colonial period. And so now these uh, inns, uh, you know, kind of uh, restored, uh, looking like Japanese wooden in wooden paneled inns uh, that you know, it's available for people to experience what it's like to stay at this kind of Japanese style uh, hotel guest house and so um, they're all refurbished with modern insulation and electricity and many of them the original wooden frames of the buildings are still intact um, I actually have uh, pictures of them they're very Nice in Japanese, with even the the Japanese um wooden bathtubs, hmm. yeah, so oh, nice. um, that's a nice thing to do and um Japanese tourists even find um these early modern style of the ryokan, um to to be uh, they find them surprisingly uh, subtle with subtle differences with the ones that they have uh, in Japan these days, so um this sounds like pretty. Pretty, pretty uh, amazing uh, project that Thai Sugar Factory has been doing. And also, um, they've uh, organized uh, several DIY activities and tours of the ground. And there are some quaint cafes in the neighborhood. There's also an amazing restaurant with uh, really amazing uh, meals. And um, so it's just a great place to enjoy traditional Japanese architecture with a backdrop of beautiful Huarian Mountains. And you're actually going to be in this quiet place and relax totally.
1: OK, here's a report uh, from the Human Freedom Index 2018 uh, released by the Canadian think tank. The Fraser Institute has placed Taiwan as the 10th freest country in the world and the freest indeed in Asia. Wow. Uh, this was uh, uh, released yesterday. Uh, the Institute said Taiwan allows the greatest personal freedom in East Asia having received the highest score in the category in the region. Taiwan has moved up from 43rd place in 2008. Wow. So, yeah, wow. so in 10 years, we've gone from... Um, this is partly a, a result of other countries regressing oh. as much as Taiwan <laughs> okay, uh, progressing. I was going to say, what have we done? But China has <laughs> remained near the bottom as the least free country in East Asia. Uh, The index is compiled by the Institute and Germany's Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and the Cato Institute in the U.S., ranked 162 countries and jurisdictions based on 79 indicators of personal, civil and economic freedoms. Would you like to have a guess at which is the freest country, according to this uh, index? It has to be somewhere like Norway or Switzerland. It's always one of those
3: Uh, countries,
1: either Nordic or Switzerland. Switzerland is second. Okay. And uh, Denmark is in the top ten.
3: Oh wow! Oh,
1: wow. Uh, the, the it's Canada, not Canada, New it's, Zealand. It's so. it's New Zealand. Yes, oh. New Zealand as it was ranked the top. Hong Kong came third, which were, but Hong Kong was the world's freest jurisdiction for several years. As we're seeing erosions of of civil liberties in Hong Kong, and so it's dropped down to third, from fourth to ninth. We've got Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, Denmark, Ireland, and the UK. And Norway, Finland, and Taiwan share 10th place.
2: Okay. So, that, so that's how, the, it's not like there's uh, you know, absolute in, yeah, ranking. Absolute they can share 10, yeah. place.
1: Yeah, that's true. The United States, only 17th. Mm. Land of the three. Well. <laughs> the 17th freest. 17th freest. <laughs> 17th freest. Uh, Germany, 13th. notable countries, South Korea, 27th. Japan, 31st. The worst is Syria. Uh, right now, is at 162nd places. The uh, institute set, reckons that freedom has declined around the world over the past decade, adding that of the 142 jurisdictions with data since 2008, 81 of them have declined in freedom, whereas 58 have increased and three were unchanged. Mm. Okay, John, tell us about how Taiwan's kids have been crushing it in the Junior Science Olympiad. Oh,
2: yes, Taiwan has done it again. Uh, They've taken six gold medals at this year's International Junior Science Olympiad. And that puts them at, it says in this article here, at the top of the medal count among 44 different countries that are participating. And you're right, this is taking place in the southern African country of Botswana. I think it's just wrapped up a few days ago. And it's uh, for kids 15 and younger in the areas of physics, chemistry, and biology. And uh, this is par for the f- course for Taiwan, though. Uh, they've topped the medal table 10 times, according to this article, since they first started uh, participating in this uh, Olympiad in 2004. Fantastic. So to date, they've, uh, they've got 77 gold medals to date. And so we've just got six more, I guess.
1: And six more than those. And so uh, at what... What were the particular uh, exciting categories, exciting competitions here well, that they won in?
2: There's a very strange one in here. I'm not quite sure what it means, actually. Uh, a student by the name of Chen Jianyi from the National Experimental High School at the Shinju Science Park won the Olympiads. It's called the Best Theoretical Prize. So I guess they go to the medal table and say, well, theoretically we could give you a prize but it's a theoretical <laughs> prize so i'm not sure if if that's what that was or if you had a good theory about something uh, yeah, but I'm he won cool. uh, sorry but this student won second overall in the rankings and then there was another taiwanese student in third overall so individual best as well
1: Well, well done to all the uh, young people from this country who uh, have uh, meddled at the junior science olympiad very very impressive um that's all we've got time for for today's program but do stay with us we've got stroke of light with jake chen is coming right up then we'll have eye on china with natalie so and uh, paula chow will be bringing us our weekly mandarin language lesson in chinese to go we'll be back at the end of the hour to bring you one more thing before we sign off but till then i'm charlie Stara. i'm sherry Lin. i'm john Ventriest. do stay tuned
4: Stroke of Light, a portrait of Taiwan through the eyes of painters, sculptors, filmmakers, and photographers.
5: Hello, and welcome to Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chen. In the last few weeks we've been looking at the works of Latin American photographers. We looked at how they apply fantastical elements in their photos to heighten the emotional impact, as well as to allow the viewers to place the works in different cultural backdrops. Last week's photos by Mauricio Goya was particularly shocking because they were made as reenactment of gruesome tortures and murders that took place during Chile in the 1970s and 1980s when the country was ruled by a military regime. This week, we will look at a group of photographs that document a similar tragedy. The difference is, the event in Chile took place in 1973, and the time that has gone by makes it feel somewhat distant, whereas this event is much closer to us. In September 26, 2014, a group of students from Isonapa Rural Teachers College traveled to Iguana in Guerrero State, Mexico, to raise respond and to lobby for the rights of teachers in rural areas. The move angered local political officials and the police subsequently intercepted the students' buses during their return trip. The police then opened fire to the students, killing six and injuring more than 20 on site. 15 students managed to escape. The remaining 43 were taken by the police. Little did they, their families, and the rest of the world expect at the time that these 43 students were never to be found again. Shortly after their disappearance, the police found 28 dead bodies that were burned and mutilated to the point where they cannot be identified. But there were great many suspicions that these were among the 43 students that were kidnapped. Where they actually ended up was a subject of much dispute. The Mexican government officially claimed that the mayor of Guerrero State was responsible for their abduction and killing. But to this very day, no action was taken against the mayor. On the other hand, an international investigative team found that it was possible that his students were killed by members of the drug gang. This brings once again the perpetual issue of corruption and the influence of drug cartels over members of the police and government officials in Mexico. And the unfortunate outcome of this deep-seated corruption is that, as horrendous of the event was, it wasn't even the worst killing that took place in Mexico in recent years. But unlike the other ones, this one gained notoriety on a global level. The involvement of an international investigative team was certainly one of the reasons. But it was also thanks to the effort of many journalists and photographers that, We, as part of the larger audience, get to see the faces of those who were taken. Enter Pablo Ortiz Monasterio, one of the most respected photographers out of Mexico. He traveled to the site where the students were allegedly kidnapped, then gathered newspaper clippings of reports on the incident, as well as other documents that he could get his hands on to put together a body of work that aims to One, bring the public attention to the event, and two, to mourn the deceased, to give faces and identities to the 43 students who were gone and could never come back. Spread across a wall panel, we see a number of smaller photographers. On the piece of paper in the center, we see the pictures of the deceased students. They are the typical black and white portrait photos of the students. Staring at the eyes of these individuals, while knowing that they have all been abducted and killed, brings chills down my spine. And at the same time, the photos come together to generate this overwhelming sense of sadness. 43 young lives, 43 different possibilities and prospects are now all gone, and all we have left are these bland, vacant faces staring right back at us. The emptiness on these faces brings to me this unprecedented and unspeakable mix of hollowness and sorrow. I guess that's as close as to what death feels like as I can get presently. Moving across the frame, in the next few photos continue the theme. In one photo, we see a person's eyes lit up and the rest of his face is engulfed in shadow. He's looking off to the side, and because our attention are completely drawn to his eyeballs, we get to see every bit of detail, including the massive number of veins. The person has clearly been crying and hasn't slept well in a while, and he's looking forcefully off to the side, into the direction of the light, as if he's seeking desperately for an answer that he knows is not there. A few Spanish words are scribbled across the bottom left corner. It reads Donde Codaden, which means where they stayed, in English. This is the eyes of a grieving father who lost his son, or perhaps a bigger brother who lost his beloved younger brother. The few photos surrounding it give off a distinctly different vibe. Whereas that photo was mournful, the photo directly to its right shows nothing but a strand of hair. To the bottom right corner, the number 2015 is scribbled, marking the year that it was presumably taken. The strand of human hair against its dark white background stimulates our fear and imagination rooted in the deepest, most primal part of our brain. The photograph on the bottom shows a blackboard with quite a few symbols drawn with chalk mostly skulls with crossbones. The image to the immediate right shows a black graffiti that looks like a syringe, alluding to the omnipresence of the drug cartel in the proximity area. And the one to its right presents a computer screen on which the face of a law student is displayed. We see the gentleman in a typical front and side profile shot. These are evidence of his once existence and also symbols of drug cartels that were allegedly involved in the killing. The photographs are raw, unpolished, some even not that well framed by conventional standards. And however, because these look like photos taken in a haste or even candid snapshots, this adds much to their realism and their impact. And it cannot be overstated given the significance of the subject matter. The photos pinned together on the next panel are the recording of evidence that are not directly related to the case. They are mostly shots of environments. In one of the photos, we see a masked man pointing the gun to the camera lens. In the one next to it, we see a huge cactus rising out of the ground, slightly crooked to the left, as if it cannot hold its own weight, or as if it cannot bear the weight of the world. Another tree with nothing but bare branches is seen in the next photo, with number four and three stranded among the branches. In another larger photo, we see a large flock of birds flying across the sky. It looks like the evening because the sky is barely lit, and birds are considered a common symbol of death in Latin American culture. Seeing these inky black little dots in the air just brings this sense of ominous danger and death. These photos ask more questions than they give answers. They stimulate our imagination by presenting very limited evidence. I think this choice was made out of necessity by the photographer, since in a case this linked to the government, there really is very little evidence to be found. But regardless of what Mr. Monasterio could get his hands on, he happened to present us fractions of things, objects, and environments that linked to the gruesome murder. And by stimulating our imagination, it allows the audience to understand to various degree, the magnitude of the whole incident, how deep the influence of the drug Cartel goes, and how profoundly it impacts the entire Mexico as a society. Documentary photographers often carry the responsibility of recording real-life events. And to photograph such a gruesome event, it takes guts, it takes patience, it takes persistence, And I guess most importantly, it takes a constant wrestle with oneself to pull through. Because to even look at one individual photo is a very difficult thing. And to photograph all this is no small task. And we, as viewers, get a glimpse of the gruesome event through the lens of the photographer, thanks to all his effort. Thank you for listening to Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chan. Talk to you next week.
0: Eye on China, first-hand perspectives on a quickly changing society.
4: Hello and welcome to Eye on China. I'm Natalie So. Just last month, Taiwan held major midterm elections, and the ruling DPP government saw a landslide defeat, losing many of the cities and counties it had once governed. The government and even the American Institute of Taiwan had warned the Taiwan public of fake news from China, trying to manipulate the results of the election. How much did China affect the election, and how is China's strategy towards Taiwan working? Join me today as I speak with a prominent expert on China, Professor Ling Zongbing of the Danjiang University Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies. What do you think about China and its role in Taiwan's recent election? Do you think that they had a big influence through uh, fake news or financial support of candidates? You know, there are a lot of rumors about this.
6: If China intervenes skillfully and uh, our administration cooperates either way because our own administration has not done its best, to improve the economic situation in Taiwan. Uh, On top of all that, Beijing's uh, strategy on Taiwan since uh, the end of last year has four elements. Impoverish Taiwan economically, (laughs) uh, strangulate Taiwan internationally, Mm -hmm. uh, either shock or intimidate Taiwan. Militarily, note, it is not attacking Taiwan. Mm. It is to have a Psychological effect on Taiwan, shock or intimidate. Mm-hmm. And fourthly, integrate Taiwan socially. Mm-hmm. They are observing these four points very skillfully. The last point is most difficult for Taiwan to counter because it goes into the society, it wins the people over there. Several public opinion surveys, even from the green camps, they already show the effect. I think August last year, Taiwan Public Opinion Foundation, founded and still run by Dr. Yoyin Long, already showed some turn of the long-term trends, for instance, ethnic identity. I'm Taiwanese, used to be the highest. I'm both Taiwanese and Chinese, used to go down, and suddenly the trends started to change the other direction. And also the willingness to work in China, the willingness to send children to receive education, and also the opinion on unification, independence, and status quo started to change. Later on, the other green entity, it's called Formosa, whatever, it's called Li Dao, Dian Zi Bao, I don't know the English name, at the same time has been showing similar trends. This, all these, I would say, were the results of Beijing's uh, well planned campaign to win the hearts and minds of Chinese young people, it started to ferment, started to show effects.
4: You mean by uh, incentives, you know, to go right, to exactly. China? Right, exactly. Give them,
6: say, 100 uh, renminbi starting money for entrepreneurs to go to China. This was part of the big project launched by the state. Council in January 2015 after China saw what happened on March 18, 2014, the Sunflower Movement. And by the end of 2016, 6,000 young entrepreneurs had been already recruited across the straits, and 1,500 companies were also following suit. So these are showing effects now.
4: Also, they're giving out identity cards, uh, yes, right? Yes, exactly. For and residents also, uh, in China. on the
6: 28th of February this year, the central government launched a 31 pro-Taiwan measures, and each province would add on. So some provinces would have 56, others would have 64, things like that.
4: So you think these are, I mean, effective?
6: Seems to be, when we look at the election results, if only the administration in Taiwan has been doing bad job, the effect would not be that obvious.
4: So, if Taiwan's economy was doing a lot better, exactly,
6: people exactly. wouldn't care as much. I think both factors have showed these effects.
4: So, do you think the main reason the DPP lost is the economy, or what do you think the main reason is?
6: The economy, in a way that people feel that uh, they are worse off now than two years ago. Mm-hmm. And also, they were not happy at how, well, in their eyes, insensitive the central administration has been showing, especially after the uh, the flood in Kaohsiung, remember? Our president rode a military vehicle, waving hands as if she were campaigning. Mm-hmm. That really hurt a lot of people's minds, hearts in Taiwan, in Kaohsiung,
4: things like that. Do you think that China was a big factor in terms of, you know, cross-strait China policy and and worsening relations with China? Do you think that people are afraid of that in Taiwan?
6: Uh, Right after the election, of course, the blue winners uh, sounded very victorious, but at the same time, some of the green county magistrates showed interest in cooperating with Kaohsiung. For instance, Zheng Wenzhen from Taoyuan, indicated interest in working together with Han Guoyun and Kaohsiung to lure the mainland visitors. And also the, I think, is it not the um, county magistrate from Pindong showed the same, same way of willingness to cooperate with the blue counties and the cities.
4: Well, what about the issue of fake news from China? Do you think that's a propaganda? Do you think that's a major uh, factor in the, in the elections or in general?
6: They are very good. However, the fake whatever to call the fake news, did not play a part in the campaign. As you can like, um, explain in many ways, you can say it didn't stand. It didn't stand the, the examination or scrutiny. It did not really ferment. You could say China was very skillful. They hid everything. You couldn't find fault with them. But in the Kaohsiung campaign, the fake news did not play a big part. Although in the beginning, some people were accusing Han Goyu of being absorbed by China. It did not go very far.
4: Do you think that he could have been funded by China?
6: I don't know. But if I were Beijing, I we'll would try everything to influence him. Mm-hmm. But whether Han Yu is smart enough to protect himself or is a stupid <laughs> to accept it, I'm not sure. I'm not here to All judge. Right. <laughs>
4: why do you think he became so popular?
6: Apparently, it's the campaign skill. Mm-hmm. Some even analyzed, saying that during the 16 years when he did not have a job, he was reading a lot of a Mao tse saying. Oh, dear. Astrology. <laughs> or, <laughs> or he learned a great deal from Professor Kerr from Taipei. <laughs> 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 and the people even noticed some similarities between the campaign style oh, of the two. Very direct, I don't know. right?
4: <laughs> Those were the thoughts of prominent China expert, Professor Ling Zongbing of Dianjiang University's Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies. Thanks for tuning in to Eye on China. I'm Natalie So.
2: Fitting In in Chinese is a special series on Chinese to go, which is jointly produced by the Chinese Language Center of Wenzhou Ursuline University of Languages and Radio Taiwan International.
7: Lai Taiwan,
8: si Yoshe Fitting in in Chinese.
7: The Bashi Fu Episode 81 Review. Ting Ting Ho San. At the sound of the tone, please choose answer one, two, or three. Wami 逛街不方便，我觉得一看起来，二还不如三刚在家看电视好。外面下雨，逛街不方便，我觉得还不如在家看电视好。这个菜一新鲜，二整理。<音声>
8: 三，看起来很好吃，可是吃起来不太好吃。这个菜看起来很好吃，可是吃起来不太好吃。我的房间太小，东西太多，不好。一复杂，二刚，三整理。1. 2. 3. 整理
7: 我的房间太小,东西太多,不好整理。
8: 也有很多日用品。小林是家中的老大, 房子小
7: 2.
8: 三代同堂 3. 复杂
7: 所以买东西的时候不会讨价还价。3.
8: 3. Liye The
1: Thanks for being with us here today on Radio Taiwan International. Don't forget, you can email us. The address is rti at rti.org.tw with any questions or comments you may have. Well, I'm Charlie Starr back in the studio with John Van Trieste and Shirley Lin. We're going to leave you with one more thing. Now, John, we've been talking uh, a lot recently about uh, the amount of garbage in the uh, waters surrounding taiwan and beach cleanups and and what have you now i understand there is a field guide to marine trash that's, tell us more about it
2: that's how bad it's gotten uh the beach cleanups are everywhere but they don't seem to be doing enough and that's why taiwanese environmental group rethink has come up with what it's calling the guidebook of marine debris uh and that's just been come out tuesday it, uh, in that book, we can meet 101 different types of marine trash found around Taiwan's waters. And the idea is to educate the public about about it and the importance of keeping the beaches and the shorelines clean, but also so that they can understand how this trash gets into the ocean in the first place. That's another mm. concern this group has. Uh, among the um, trashy friends we meet in this book, uh, there are rubber ducks, yellow rubber ducks, not sure... They float out of someone's bathtub, I guess. Um, (laughs) There's plastic sandals, which is a very Taiwanese type of trash to have around. I guess. The 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 blue
1: blue sandal.
2: The blue and white white sandals. sandals. Very classic Taiwanese thing. Also, plastic bottles, fishing floats, disposable cups, videotapes. Who's throwing out VHSs into the water? And and toys as well. So I think largely plastic stuff in there. Uh, The oldest item in this book is very growth. Uh, It's a military ration pack that dates back to 1988. So uh, that's gone off, I'm sure. Um, Yes. (laughs) And the founder of this group, Rethink, Josh Huang, has, I think, repeated a statistic we may have heard on this program before. He estimates that uh, that, uh, the amount of plastic garbage all over Taiwan's beaches could fill 150,000 large plastic bags.
1: Yes. I remember you or Jake saying that. I Mm. think we've heard that somewhere Mm.
2: before. Uh, So... Yes, the guidebook has a website, a a companion website, and this one is a bit different. Actually, this one is the website part of this project is based on Pokemon Go. So basically, it personifies. Oh, I don't want to know what the ration pack turned out to be like. But uh, anyway, it personifies <laughs> these bits of trash, and uh, you you have these like ocean monsters, and also gives you a 360
1: degree view of the litter, which is
2: disgusting, but I guess necessary to drive home just how much this garbage is out there.
1: Now there is an idea there, isn't there, to make like a a sort of collect them or, all, I guess, augmented reality game like Pokemon Go, but instead yeah. you for every you pick up find this garbage, pick up this garbage, and you get a. Uh, I'll garbage no. character that's <laughs> kind of like a Pokemon, a Trashimon or something.
2: So yeah, they, I mean, the, the group is doing other things. They're, in the next next year, they have twenty education sessions planned to teach the public about trash in the oceans, and they they're going to even introduce board games too. So the, the game idea is hmm. something they're working on, uh, and this is these are geared towards children. But I think. Judging by the number of middle-aged uh, people walking around playing Pokemon well, Go, Go. Yeah. with multiple cell phones, it's a very Taiwanese. Another oh, very Taiwanese thing. Seriously? I get think. This, I don't this think this is an app. we will
1: have these shoreline cleaned in I no time?
2: I don't think this needs to be just something geared towards children necessarily. So yeah, they have a lot of uh, different plans for the future. Looks like uh, this group's been active since 2013, and it's it is mainly it's it's an environmental group, but mainly it's uh, trying to clean up our beaches. Yeah. Well, this guidebook and its website are a joint project, so there's Rethink involved, but also a group called RC Culture and Arts Foundation and Citibank Taiwan. So uh, I guess we've got some corporate sponsors as well in this project. So hopefully they can maybe pitch in some money, kickstart it. I like the the board game idea especially.
1: Yeah. So the organization is called
2: Rethink. Yes, that's in all caps with a hyphen between the E and the T
1: re-think yes yeah well thanks so much for being with us today that's all we've got time for for our programs but do join us again tomorrow when our programs will include taiwan today live from taipei and another edition of here in taiwan but for today on behalf of all of us here at rti i'm charlie staris signing off for the day